Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of MA Architects Make It Innovative, featuring deep dive discussions on the world of innovation as it relates to the built environment. Throughout the series, we'll be interviewing influential innovators that are shifting the way things are done, introducing new ideas and energy to our evolving city in a way that elevates human experiences and enriches lives. These leaders are being proactive and progressive in navigating success set up by innovative design, and we're here to share their stories with you. I'm Mark Bryan. I'm a certified futurist and leader of the research and innovation team for MA Architects. And I'm Sam Dickerson, the director of strategic communications for the firm. On this episode, we're going to focus on the future consumer of 2023 and beyond, and what has shifted with generational preferences by talking to one of my good friends, Rebecca Matheny. Rebecca Matheny is an associate professor of interior design in the Department of Design at The Ohio State University. With over a decade of industry experience, primarily in retail brand experience design and strategy, Rebecca bridges academia and design practice by bringing this expertise to her work as an educator, researcher, and consultant, integrating a developed process based on her research for sustainable brand strategy to the areas of retail, hospitality, corporate office, and higher education design. I literally feel like I need a Starbucks just to keep up with that entire spreadsheet of amazing accolades. She's literally one of the coolest people I know, you guys. She has more professional experience and more interesting things to say than most. And Rebecca has been published in academic and professional journals and has presented at both academic and professional conferences around the world. She's spoken at Neocon, the International Retail Design Conference for the past five years, the Global Fashion Conference in London, and at Product Lifetimes and the Environment Conference, to name a few. You can also look her up on her TED Talk, from 2016, pretty casual. She's a busy person, so oh, we are so babe. fortunate to have <laughs> yes. her on with us today. Rebecca and I have also worked together in the past doing retail design, but at MA Architects, we have worked on more than that. We've worked on two white papers for the correct lighting levels for senior living facilities and the future of higher education. And we're currently working on our third white paper surrounding building successful co-living communities. Rebecca has taken part in our trend forecasting workshop as well, lending her insights into generational preferences, as well as what she sees coming down the road, which is what something we're going to talk about today. I'm so here for it. I feel like every time I leave you, Rebecca, I feel so much more inspired and so much more educated. She's literally a wealth of knowledge and just so rad doing it all. So it's always inspiring to hear from you, and we're really excited to have you on our show. Yes, welcome. We are glad to have you on our show, and we're going to finally record one of our infamous design conversations and share it with others. Ooh, sneak peek. This is like some inside scoop, you guys. (laughs) All right, enough tout. So we're just going to go ahead and start off. So Rebecca, could you just give us the one-minute elevator pitch of your role at the Ohio State University Design Department and your passion for research and design? Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Samantha. I am so excited to be here with both of you today to share my passion for design, uh, interior design, but design at large, and where our future is going as influenced by design. Um, I came to Ohio State six years ago, and um, I'm an Ohioan originally, so it was really nice coming back to my home state and to be part of you know, our Buckeye Nation um, and to be part of that here and to now be tenured at the university, which I'm really excited Ooh. about. Big congrats on that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, so um, I teach a couple of different courses, everything from ranging of design studios, um, collaborative design studios, and some technical courses focused in lighting design and in um, materials and methods. So my professional and academic background is in architecture and interior design both from the University of Cincinnati and the University of Oregon. And while at the University of Oregon, I studied specifically in sustainable design strategies. So I bring that 
background to all of the courses that I teach, whether that's a creative design studio or whether that's a technical course, like I said, in lighting or materials. Um, we also have something really unique at The Ohio State with our design department. Interior design is positioned alongside industrial design and visual communication design. This is a little bit different than a couple of the other schools here in Ohio or across the country, which interior design is typically partnered with architecture. And it gives us a different perspective on design thinking. It also allows us to do really interesting collaborative design studios, which I'll talk more about later. So awesome. I'm like smiling so hard under this mask, I swear. But <laughs> I'm just nodding my head like, yes, yes, I love it all. It's so awesome. And I feel like we are so fortunate to have you as one of our partners and a design consultant for us in so many ways and just get a lot of inspiration and innovation from all the things that you're doing. Rebecca, now we want to get deep dive to know you personally. So we've got a really good idea of what you're doing professionally. We want our listeners to get to know you the way that we do as friends and colleagues. You ready, girl? I am. Let's do it. What are you most excited about these days? Oh, gosh. So many things. So many things. I think, in particular, I'm really excited by the energy and the passion I see coming from youth generations, which is I know, I know is something we're going to talk about today. But these generations, Gen Z in particular, are really determined to make the world a better place. And by addressing different things such as climate change and sustainability to inequity and racial justice, we see it happening every day. And that drive, that passion is really inspiring and motivating for me. Um, it really recharges my batteries and makes me want to do more each and every day in my own personal growth, in my growth towards my students, but just how do I become um, as energized and activated as they are. Oh, that's so awesome. I think it gives me so much hope for the future to see the ways that they've really showed up and are honoring their truth. I think it's such awesome stuff happening in the world right now. I think that's the exact, the right word is hope. Mm -hmm. And through hope, we can be inspired and energized and excited. I love it. I'm already feeling more energized. (laughs) You guys, what is the skill still unmastered? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm fairly crafty in general. Um, I think Growing up in the Midwest, um, it was a family trait to sort of pass down this um, makerness, um, sewing, quilting, knitting. It came from my grandmother to my mom to myself. So I like to really work with my hands. And I know we've talked about this sort of revitalization of humanity and human making. And um, I'm grateful I have those skills. Um, but you know, something I've never really done, aside from like painting and some other things that way, I've never blown glass or worked with clay. And so I think I'd really like to get into sculpture. I'm really, um, I was just talking about this this morning with a friend. I'm really excited by some of these innovative uh, clay sculptures that are happening. Studio Arhoy in general is really inspiring. I know I gave Mark a little Studio Arhoy that I brought back from Copenhagen in the fall. And um, so, yeah, I think I'd like to try my hand at something like that. Yes, I love that. We're going to take you to Glass Access. It's a blast. Yes, let's do it. Willing to be sponsors if you guys are interested. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take you up on that soon. (laughs) What is the best way to decompress? Well, I know you and I have met a couple of times at Give Yoga, our studio. Um, So yoga, for me, is a big part of my daily routine, and it's part of what's fueling my sense of wellness, um, which... I know I've been in this sort of grind of working towards tenure these last six years, and it's been a reset button this last year to really focus back on my internal health and my mental health. 
um, and yoga. So shout out to them. I know you guys partner with them oh, too. Such, such great partners of ours. Yes. They are. And they're such great partners for the community. Yes. Um, and so they embody my values. We're going to talk about values later, but they embody my values. So I'm excited to be part of that community. Um, but I also wholeheartedly believe in this idea of need for nature. And as an Ohioan, like I said, um, I grew up here, but I spent a lot of time prior out west, whether it was in Oregon or Colorado or Washington living, and my heart is still in the mountains. And so I try to get out into nature as much as possible, either here in Hocking Hills for hiking or even our metro parks or, um, or travel when I travel. And I think travel is the other way I decompress. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, how I get excited. You talked about that as the first question. Um, it's where I hit my reset and, of inspiration as well. And I think that that's one thing that COVID has deprived me of lately is that I didn't get to go on my annual trips to New York or Chicago yeah. for my design immersion and inspiration. And I had a trip to Alaska planned in May and I didn't get to get my nature fix either. And so I try to use travel to hit both of those buckets when I can. Well, hopefully we can provide some inspiration today to our listeners and then yes. we can figure out how to inspire each other in the future. I love it. So let's just go ahead and dive right in then. Getting started again, congratulations on your tenure at OSU. That's yes. huge. Um, it's a major milestone and accomplishment. And you and I have talked a lot about things have evolved when it comes to teaching design specifically. Mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed it when you have invited me to come to be a part of your design crits or hear your retail studio presentations. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is happening in the world of design education and how you're updating the process? Yeah, I'd be really happy to. Um, I believe it is essential that contemporary interior design education connect the dots between design theory, design research, the technical functional aspects of design, and the current modes of professional practice. And maybe to provide a couple examples of how I'm doing that and, and backing up a second, I think one of the things we're struggling with in education over the last 10 years, because I've been teaching for quite a long time, is that high school education is very siloed. And so one of the things we have to do is connect those dots and build those bridges as we sort of erect the scaffolding, if you will, for the curriculum of design education. And so for me, it's about having to metaphorically and literally connect those dots from time to time. So maybe if I give you guys a couple examples of how I'm doing that, it might help to illustrate. Please where, do. Where yes. That's yes. Okay, I would love that. Yeah. So for a couple of examples of how I'm doing this, I would first like to start by maybe talking about the second year students. And so right now at Ohio State, the first year foundations is all three disciplines I mentioned earlier in a foundational curriculum. So they enter interior design in the sophomore year, and I get to first sort of have my hands with them um, in the spring semester after they've had their first introductory studio. And so in that studio and in that, that semester, um, students are introduced to sustainability through the theoretical and strategic elements of biophilia in their studio for their hospitality project and workplace project but also simultaneously, that is reinforced with a material palette exercise in the materials and methods course. So in that project, um, I use poems or haikus centered around nature to be a springboard for their conceptual and sensorial material experience. Real quick, you guys, for our listeners who might not be as tuned into design as the two of you are, yeah. can you explain, like Reader's Digest version, what is biophilia? 
Okay, so biophilia, like I mentioned, the need for nature. Biophilia is the need for nature. It's the human's innate biological need to be connected to nature. So if we think about biomimicry, biomimicry is the scientific replication of what naturally occurs in nature. So it's looking at fish scales and creating a garment um, or a swimming suit that has that ability to wick the water properly. So it's a scientific translation into something man-made. Biophilia is about understanding the psychological and human biology to connect us to nature and how we can incorporate that in. So there's 16 patterns of biophilia um, that we can deploy as a strategic approach. In the built environment. In the built environment. If Correct. you guys are not listening and like, wow, this woman is the coolest person ever. I'll <laughs> tell you what, I'm over here just like fangirling hard. But it is so interesting, the whole concept of biophilia and its place in the built environment, how it's really starting to drive a lot of design and a lot of the conversations I hear the two of you having. So continue on, please. But now everyone's, I think, on board and, you know, thumbsing up to biophilia. Yeah. Yeah. It's a term um, maybe not everyone's work. Um, familiar with, but there's quite a bit of uh, books out there to talk about it. So um, so building on this idea or theoretical framework of biophilia that's introduced to them in studio, we reemphasize that in the materials course, which is traditionally a very technical, book-oriented lecture course. And instead, what I like to do in that class is start off more uh, conceptual and understand principles of translation and conceptual design. And that becomes really important for what we do as practitioners because we understand that materials, because of biophilia, are really critical to the end user experience. We have to integrate them earlier in the professional practice of the process of design so that they become not something that's an afterthought, um, but something that's integrated into the design strategy. So kind of think, again, thinking about practitioners. So conceptually, in the course, we introduce a poem, a haiku, and they use this as a springboard for their conceptual sensorial material experience. So to connect and translate the haiku into a palette, I leverage my retail design toolkit and have them use mind mapping to explore attributes and create a visual positioning board, skills that they're also learning in the design studio. What is mind mapping? Mind mapping is when you take a word and you sort of explore its multiple other um, definitions or words that support it. So it's like sun could also or uh, could also mean light, right? And so it's this exploration of the metaphor. Amazing. And people in any industry could use that as a way to brainstorm or to spark creativity. 100%. It's a big part of design thinking. Very cool. Yeah. So the materials course also teaches Lynn later after this project the more technical pieces of lead while the studio is talking about well-building, again, using biophilia and these other two sort of um, technical versus emotional platforms to help develop strategies. And all of this ultimately leads in the materials course to a sponsor project with Mohawk Group, which is a carpet manufacturer with our friend Royce Epstein, uh, who's an A&D director for Mohawk, where students research and develop a macro trend that captures their generational values and is translated through the lens of sustainability to develop a carpet design. So we've done this now for the past three years or so. Um, and just last fall, Royce and I presented the outcomes from this um, and some research that we did called Generation Scrap 
to an international sustainable design conference in Berlin. Um, and we were unreal. <laughs> thanks. And we were, we were scheduled to present the work to professional interior designers at Neocon this year, but alas, uh, Neocon was canceled. Oh, COVID. Ugh. You're ruining all of our plans, <laughs> but here's hoping, you know, next June we'll be able to do that. Um, and if I can, if we've got the time, uh, I've got two other little examples of how we're kind of connecting these dots. Um, the junior studio I instruct is a partnership with OD, which is the Office of Distance Education and E-Learning at Ohio State. And it's also sponsored by Herman Miller. So what we discovered in this, that led to this project is that through the Big Ten Design Challenge, we realized that students desire, um, their desires for learning environments isn't always what we, the designers, think they are. So this project is essentially a participatory design exercise that allows students to design their university learning environments and experience based on their future desires and needs. So connecting to their design research course that's happening at the same time, students are implementing these research practices to engage other OSU students that are non-designers in the design process. So we've talked a little bit about participatory design. We'll hit on that later with the project that we've been working on together, Mark. Um, so in last year, we looked at third place design. So those are those interstitial spaces like lobbies and corridors and libraries and cafes and coffee shops um, to extend active learning beyond the classroom. This year, we're doing the exact same spaces, but we're adding in the layer of COVID so stay tuned. It should be interesting. I was going to say, I feel like of all spaces to be the most impacted, we had Liz on um, our last episode talking about healthcare and how the waiting room yeah. is going to have to look entirely different, which is in its own realm, a third space. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you have any inside sneak peeks as far as what your research is unveiling for that space? Well, I think surprisingly, um, I'm doing a, another research project this summer, and it, I think we're discovering that students are going to want to be in those spaces for a variety of reasons. And so what otherwise was considered something we might just block off and remove the furniture from is now probably more important than ever. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, I think what I love about the way that you talk about and approach teaching design is that it really is building in the stories, but it's building that upfront education that then mm -hmm. gets to the little nuggets that need to be translated throughout all of our design uh, thinking and processes. And especially as we think about teaching going forward from a COVID standpoint for design specifically, it's going to be probably vastly different. There's going to probably going to be new codes that are generated. It's probably right. going to be more about wellness and well-being and more about social interaction than per se, just like heads down work, especially from a workplace standpoint. You know, it's interesting you bring up codes because we're celebrating this year the 30th anniversary of the ADA, which I, you and I as education ourselves grew up or were educated to not design anything other than to ADA. Yep. So I had no idea that it was only in its 30-year infancy. Um, so it boggles my mind that there was designs being done without it prior. And so I think we are going to see um, how COVID or this idea of pandemic, because it's it's not going to go away. We knew that this was going to happen. Um, there was preparation occurring for it. There were systems in place. And I think with climate change, we're going to see more and more of it happening. So we need to really think about where that's going to go. Agreed. Absolutely. Really early on, Mark said to me, just because it's different doesn't mean it can't be better. Exactly. And that has been something that I've held on to because it has inspired me so much to think that what we're doing before could be fixed. You yeah. know, in many ways, what we were doing was broken. And I yeah. think that there's a lot of potential for the future. I think we hear the statement, um, you know, we're all ready to get back to normal. But if normal is what led us to here, then is that the normal we want to go back to? Or can we create and forge a new normal? 
I think we are in the new normal because I think it is something where this is one of those inflection points in history that's going to catapult us into something mm-hmm. completely different. 100%. I agree. And to take advantage of this time and use it as a transformation period, I think if we were to just revert back to the way things quote, quote, were, we would be at such a disadvantage. We would have lost the opportunities that came from this time. What challenges you will change you. I truly believe it. And I really think some really wonderful things can stem from all of this. And your research is so aligned with all of that. I think it's so cool to hear already sneak peeks and insights of the future generations of, you know, the Gen Zs and the, the high schoolers that are working already now to figure out what they care about, what they're standing for, the changes that they want to actually make. Well, and I think that's even also reflected in my last example of what I teach in, you know, sort of my maybe crown jewel of my course is the one I'm probably the most passionate about because it's been something that I've been working towards creating um, for a really long time and is, is this redefining retail studio. And we'll talk a lot about retail behaviors and, and generational behaviors. And so this is the one that's like maybe my, my feather in the cap, if you will, um, <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> I like that um, visual. <laughs> so the redefining retail studio um, actually was recognized by IDEC, which is the Interior Design Educators Council, as an innovative teaching idea two years ago. Yes. So thanks. The studio um, is a unique approach to retail design because students actually select a digital native brand that aligns with their core value system, uh, including sustainability. That's at the heart of this, and it's at the heart of everything that I do teaching-wise. Um, it's holistic rather than applied um, or surface applied. Explain to me what a digital native brand is. So a digital native brand is very similar to a digital native um, it means that it came from its inception was online rather than a brand that was started as a brick and mortar brand and brought to market that way. A digital native brand is one that we see started um, that may have a store now. So for example, we were just talking about my Rothy mask. Rothy started online and now has opened stores, but they're slow and strategic about brick and mortar store opening. Interesting. Right? So yeah, digital native brands. Um, and so they, they take this idea of you know, sustainability and their core values um, and other so- uh, social issues as well, and they design a physical retail experience that connects people to products and brand purpose through the physical place. So this project is also sponsored by VMSD Magazine, which is a trade journal, a retail design trade journal. And we work in conjunction with other local retail design agencies throughout the entire semester doing workshops and critiques and the winning project gets to present at IRDC, the International Retail Design Conference you mentioned earlier. And in the past few years, we've addressed issues such as product lifecycle analysis and slow fashion, um, which of course connects back to my research. It's so brilliant because a lot of the things you guys are doing, yes, it's interior design, but it's behavioral psychology, it's consumer mm-hmm. sentiment, it's mm-hmm. future forecasting, it's really holistic approach mm-hmm. to design. And what an awesome opportunity for these students to have such exposure through their education. Agreed. Thanks. So we've heard now how you are revolutionizing the way that you are teaching the next generation of designers. Talk a little bit about the other side of what you do at OSU, which I know OSU is a research school. So give us the quick highlights of like what you're researching right now. Right. So Ohio State is a tier one research institution. So a good chunk of my work is research based. And my primary research is centered around sustainable design strategies specifically for retail and consumer behaviors. Um, I'm examining how the retail environment, through its various touch points, can create emotional connections between people, product, brand purpose, 
and physical place to forge meaningful memories and foster stronger relationships. By doing this, brands can connect more deeply with the values driving consumers while also educating and influencing consumer behavior to be more environmentally and socially responsible. And when I say touch points, I mean that could be the physical and spatial elements, digital, virtual, um, or between people to people and through service design as well. My current research project focuses on building upon the slow fashion movement to develop what I term as slow retail experience design. So what does this actually mean? Well, slow fashion is the opposite of fast fashion or cheaply made disposable clothing. Slow fashion encourages consumers to evaluate the ways in which people, in the ways in which products are designed, produced, consumed, and used in everyday life, the entire life cycle, if you will, to establish a more environmentally responsible lifestyle. It's also about establishing a strong relationship between the consumer, the product, and the producer's ethics. While some may argue that the brick and mortar store is dead, especially now with what we are facing via COVID, I actually argue that the physical retail space and its store experience needs to be more, is needed more than ever, um, but it's needed to be redefined as the critical physical link in establishing and deepening this relationship. I agree with that 100%. It's really going to become about the experience and then how you're connecting that back to the values of what they are trying to sell. Mm-hmm. I think people are even just missing having the opportunity to have those experiences and seeing things for themselves, touching things for themselves. It's it's so different. So I think that this desensitized society where we're just scrolling through life, it's really starting to halt, especially when we had that option taken away from us. A lot of things that we took for granted for so long, now we're like, wait, I want to be, you know, back shopping or I want to mm-hmm. be actually at a restaurant enjoying this meal instead of just grabbing takeout. So moving then a little bit from education to generations. So one of our true differentiators for us at MA is being able to help guide our clients through like the dizzying pace of changes that happen within those generations. And I'm sure most of you heard about probably millennials and Gen Zs a lot. So we thought we would probably give you a little bit of upfront education on some of the other generations that are out there. So right now um, we've got the silent generation, which is from, which were born from 1925 to 1945. We've got the boomers that were from 1946 to 1964. Getting a little bit closer to today, we've got the Gen X uh, or Generation X, which is from 1965 to 1979. Millennials from 1980 to 1994. Gen Z from 1995 to 2010. And then Generation Alpha is anybody born after that. Mm-hmm. So cool. Something I just heard too the other day, 24% of the current workforce is Gen Z. Yep. The future is now. I feel like a lot of people, when we talk about Gen Z, they're like, oh, that's to come, that's to come. It's 24% of our work population yeah. today. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why it's so important to understand those generations, because we need to understand how we're going to future-proof our spaces for them. Exactly. So, Rebecca, I know you're an expert in the generations and the preferences and sustainability, and there's a lot happening right now. Can you give us your perspective on a quick snapshot of what is happening within at least maybe the big three generations? Yeah. Um, as we talked about, you know, millennials as, a, millennials as a whole are still a driving force, but Gen Z are swiftly impacting retail and all other segments. In fact, Gen Z is the largest demographic worldwide. Huh. Yeah. And 90.5 million people are in the Gen Z category here in the United States. Um, and they make up 40% of the consumers in the U.S., Europe, and BRIC countries. Wow. Yeah. So the second largest is still the baby boom generation. Um, And research indicates that both these generations, Gen Z and millennials, 
demand authentic, transparent storytelling to create a connection between their beliefs and the values they place on products they purchase. I love that we're talking about like especially three key generations right now, not to discredit baby boomers, but Gen X, what you know, you guys are calling the adaptable assimilators and then millennials, the responsible, reluctant adults, guilty, and Gen Z, the diversely curated with a purpose generation. So it's cool that everyone has their own identity and in some way, shape or form, if you're being honest with yourself, I think you could relate. Yeah, and I think there's actually quite a few connections between millennials and Gen Z. Not as much with Gen X, because I'm part of Gen X, but we can talk a little bit more about them here in a, in a second. But I think, you know, in a research study of millennials from 17 different countries, 78% would recommend a company they believe is a good citizen, and 71 would be loyal to that business. Those are really that. important mm-hmm. figures to help understand what's driving how businesses should be developed um, or how businesses should be built and um, behave. You know, these generations tend to focus less on products and more on a company's purpose towards environmental and social impact and are driven by their ethical responsibility toward environmental and social sustainability. And when I say product, I do mean tangible objects, but I also mean the services they subscribe to. So housing companies that they rent from and even companies that they choose to work for, these values are going into every decision that they are making. Oh, I so agree. We heard Brene Brown speak at South by Southwest last year, and it was really revolutionary. She said, it's not about what you do. It's about who you are. Mm-hmm. So in our case, if we're an architecture firm, we better do great architecture, which we do. But what matters more is who we are. What are the values exactly. that drive us? You know, And I think that's where people are finding their loyalty to different brands is through those values. Exactly mm-hmm. what you're saying. It's so interesting. Yeah, and exactly. So from a, the same survey, 60% of Gen Z say they aspire to have jobs that make a difference um, in the world and have social impact. So they're choosing their jobs based on what the company is doing. Correct. And I mean, another statistic that I heard out there is that actually if uh, those younger generations have a mentor, they are likely to stay at least two to five years longer at that job mm-hmm. because they feel invested in, they feel like they have somebody that will listen to them and help them versus just being thrown into an environment where you have to survive. And that goes into education too. So students want to trust the the professor. It's no longer just acceptable that this is someone I'm supposed to learn from. They really want a, a relationship that's built between their professor, their instructor, their aspirational mentor in their education. So, you know, like Instagram account for myself, that's one of the things I use to connect beyond the classroom with my students and continue, um, continue educating them when they've even left and graduated. It's so cool. Multi-generational I think collaboration, but then also diversity in mm-hmm. whatever that final product is. I think it's not so much that the generations are siloed, but there's so many opportunities to integrate. And that I think is where a lot of innovation will stem from. And I agree with that. I think right now we're talking about generations as a little bit of a, like you said, siloed, but I think the key going forward is also thinking about it intergenerationally and how they are right. interacting together and how you can speak to those different cohorts together. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we're starting to see that translated into their their behaviors and purchasing powers so we're already seeing it exhibited in their desire for smaller more intimate homes be that single family or reinforcing the growing trend towards urban living apartment or multi-generational or co-living as well Um, we're seeing you know fewer material possessions and an increase in the shared economy so you know a single car or no car at all and using ride shares and public transportation cycling is on the the incline as well Um, you know and and through my own research 
in, in conjunction with the teaching, I've discovered that these generations, along with the Gen Z and along with the younger millennials, really care about deepening human relationships, having memorable experiences. So if I were to tick these off. Yes, I'm like, yes, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> giving back to their local and global community. Becoming the localists. Yes. Mm-hmm. Equality in all aspects. And I mean racial, religious, gender, sexual identity, and economic, and education. Yes, this is getting me hyped. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that translates into issues related to social justice and environmental sustainability and, and those activisms as well. And, you know, all of this aligns with the characteristics of these generations. So a recent Pew Research study I just read this, this week um, uh, from the Census Bureau uh, showed that 48% of post-millennials, and this is really, again, that Gen Z and Gen Alpha, are racial and ethnic minorities, 48%. And that really shows you where our country has evolved. And this idea of um, uh, interracial relationships and um, migration and all these you know, different aspects of, of where our country is going. And I think we see those, re- those statistics are really reflective in those values we just saw. Yeah, I mean, we call the Generation Z um, the diversely curated, but with a purpose, you know, uh-huh. yes, because yes. it's no longer stereotypical. It's the same with the students at a higher education facilities. It's no longer the same straight, narrow path to get to education. And they're no longer the student that just graduated from high school. They come from all different backgrounds. Yep. Absolutely. And the bottom line, these generations know that their actions and their words have meaning and, and it impacts what they want to do and what they are doing every day. You know, and I think this is similar. You know, we talked about Gen X a little bit, but um, I think the, that generation is often overlooked. But just as a reminder, you know, when we think about millennials, they're approaching their 40s, their home buyers, their parents. And again, going back to what you said, Sam, most people think, oh, college students are millennials. No, Gen Z is right. college students. Millennials are approaching their 40s, home buyers. Their decisions are really being driven by the values that they want to instill in their children and how they want to raise their children. So that's leading us to a different type of housing environment, for example, or purchases for that. And I think Gen X, what's interesting about that, you you said adaptable assimilators. And when I read that term or heard you say it, I mean, um, it really resonated because I'm part of that, right? We are digital adapters, but it really is characteristic about um, the behaviors of them too, because they are actually, by assimilators, they're open to learning and, they're learning from their gen alpha children and they're able to change their behaviors. And I think that that is really positive in a radical transformational way. I am so curious then Rebecca narrowing a little bit, what seismic shifts are you forecasting going forward will happen with millennials and then Gen Zers who are quickly becoming a key cohort that are defining trends? Yeah, well, I think we're already starting to see this reflected in these generations' desires. You know, we talked about it just a a minute ago. Their actions, both socially, economically, environmentally, um, which as an aside, those are the three pillars of sustainability, which people might not understand. People, when they hear sustainability, they think of environmental, but actually environmental is just one column. Social sustainability and economic sustainability are the other two. 
And this generation understands that these are intrinsically laced. Environmental justice is social justice. Our actions are interconnected. Spending a bit more for ethically made clothing is improving the lives of workers and reducing environmental waste. Purchasing from a local independent shop supports that person and your local community rather than some billionaire that you don't know or have seen on the te- on TV or on the web, right? Um, so as they say, sharing is caring. <laughs> um, in Europe, we already see an increased model for this idea of the shared economy, um, you know, whether it's toy libraries or co-living communities, which we're working on a paper for for that, um, bikes, subways, trains. We can see an increase of this idea of repairing, such as repair cafes or even the tailor, the cobbler embedded into the shop. We also see shifts towards remade or repurpose, this increase of thrifting. You know, we're starting to see that, like, Patagonia and um, Eileen Fisher and others are offering uh, lines of thrift to us. And we're also seeing an intake of, or an uptick, I guess you will, of um, thrift stores online. So right now, ThreadUp and Poshmark are doing really well during COVID. Um, And it also is really reflected in youth generation's desires because I was doing a research project with um, one of my students. And one of the things that we uncovered was 16% of youth generation participants which was the highest of any category, said that their primary location for clothing was a thrift store. Yes, I'm about it. Right? Mm-hmm. I love it. I think it's cool, too, that Columbus just opened their first refillery. Have you guys heard about yes. this? Yes. I'm so excited. I'm checking oh. out this weekend. I think yes. it's so cool. You bring like your old containers and you can refill soap or lotion or mm-hmm. whatever, but they have a number of sustainable products for curation of apothecary and household cleaning items. Um, and it's just really cool. Like the name implies, you refill bottles that they bring in and it's an array of personal care to household cleaning products all available here. So for Columbus in the Midwest to be on board, I am really excited. I feel like we yeah. keep saying the same thing, but COVID didn't really introduce a ton of new trends. It just accelerated trends that were already being anticipated. 100%. So exactly, it's really, COVID is a catalyst for change. And I think there's a lot of positive outlooks if you think of it that way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what's really interesting is like, we see this contrast between the national average, like I mentioned, 16% previously towards thrift. The national average is 14% of people shop on Amazon and 12 at Walmart. And I think we're starting to see the seismic shift towards um, towards slow and away from fast. And I think we're seeing that even here in the Midwest. And it's not just for Europe. It's not just for the coast. We're seeing this idea towards um, gradual behavioral changes. So... Building on all of that, you know, we've talked about now what these generations are wanting and what they're doing. Let's talk about them in the future and what those consumer sentiments are really going to look like. You know, generational preferences aside, we have to think about the emotional side of things, meaning what are the drivers, such as a pandemic, that are pushing our large populations to feel something that shapes the way that they behave. And one of those signals that we see coming down the pike is this idea of emotional contagion. I think what's so interesting about emotional contagion is it's defined as people mimicking the feelings of those around them. It's also spreading at rapid pace because of our digital era and our connection to technology and social media platforms. So it's really interesting. I think you gave me a really great example earlier, Mark, but if you've ever seen America's Funniest Home Videos, I dare you to watch it on mute because you honestly right? like cringe when you see these people fall. <laughs> but then if you play the laugh track, you're like, arr, 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 you know, like mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I have permission to laugh. I have permission to like yeah. kind of feel that same way. And it's not necessarily group think, but it's saying that those feelings are allowed or even kind of encouraging the direction of 
what you think about what you're consuming. So very similarly, a meme, of course, could create global laughter. I send them all the time. Um, while a video of social injustice can create global outrage and protest for justice. So business owners can expect this to become not only more common, but also more important to consider when creating content that relates to your consumer. And research actually shows that people are more likely to spend money on something that they are emotionally tied to. We've talked about it with our generations already. So I think using experiences that are all coming from experiential design within your space to create low touch, high impact, is going to create something that people are going to respond to in hopefully in a positive way. So Rebecca, in your opinion, how do you see this idea of sharing and communicating values through emotional contagion playing out with our future consumers? Yeah, everything you just articulated is so spot on, especially in the moment we are living in right now. Humans are sensorial beings. What we see, hear, touch, and even smell, and even taste, resonates with our humanity. It conjures a memory. It evokes emotional responses. As we live in this digitally immersive world with access to information, and in many cases, raw, authentic storytelling captured on a cell phone and shared in real time, we are extremely impacted and oftentimes overcome by it. Case in point, I mentioned I'm working on a COVID-related research project. One of the key findings that our survey revealed was that 80% of students feel anxious, depressed, or stressed on a weekly, if not daily basis due Mm. to COVID's impact. That is mind-blowing to Mm -hmm. me. We love nothing more than talking about mental wellness and Mm -hmm. mental health support, and it is so real. And people who still think that mental health carries the stigma We have to shift these conversations towards strength. And yet, at the same time, I see students sharing positive words of encouragement, resources, and even becoming advocates. And this extends beyond COVID. While youth could feel overwhelmed and depressed by climate change, we've seen people turn out all over the world in numbers like we've never seen before advocating for climate justice. The same for social justice, seeing daily barrages of videos, is a gut punch and a soul crusher. But in contrast to that, we see radical transformationing happening. And again, this reinforces the ethics and the values of these generations that we talked about before. You know, take take in point um, here locally, the Bexley Anti-Racism Project. You know, go check out their Instagram account. This initiative was started by three youth advocates. Or the Dear Dublin City Schools is another Instagram account that was started by students to share their stories of their experiences with racism in school. These are really important, and it's not just a global thing, it's a local thing too. So how does that relate to your question about brands, (laughs) businesses, and employees, um, and creating messaging? Well, to my earlier comment um, about millennials and Gen Z's desires for transparency, honesty, and authenticity, That directly relates to what we're talking about here. Brands can't just make something up. These generations are digital natives. They uncover the truth, generally and statistically speaking. So if you notice how many of these Instagram things that are being shared have citations on them of their sources, right? So this idea of fake news, this isn't a generation that perpetuates actual fake news. They're getting to the bottom of it and they know how to use these digital tools to their advantage. That's not to say that they're not sharing the memes and the funny pictures of cats and whatnot, (laughs) but um, when it comes to brand values, it's not sufficient enough for brands to say that they just do something. They have to live and breathe it. It has to be their soul, just like it is for these generations 
to put this into a little bit more context, there are purpose-aligned brands. These are brands that align themselves with a cause. In essence, they're putting their brand mark on something in a show of support or solidarity. Then there are purpose-driven brands. These are brands that may do um, a one-for-one -one campaign or donate a percentage of their profits. And then there are generous brands, brands who from their core are founded on their action-oriented um, drive and they put boots on the ground. The future lives in these generous brands because in this category, it's not messaging, it's soul-bearing. It's a word that's used too much, but authenticity. It mm -hmm. is finally, you know, a lot of things that have happened lately in the world, people are so discouraged by, you know, things becoming uncovered or things, even Jeffrey Epstein and whatever. But I think it's actually really encouraging. You can't be a bad person anymore because there's always someone watching and it's not necessarily like Big Brother or something crazy like that. It's each, it's people and your like call to humanity yet again that people are saying you can't be this way. Like you need to show up and be a good person and there's a lot more accountability and a lot more desire for authenticity. So I do want to talk about how we examine the future consumer. It's a real passion of mine. I love consumer sentiment, behavioral psychology, and it's really important to think about for brands to be successful who their target audience is. And I think right now we're all aware of the struggle of the work-life balance. I saw something the other day that said, you're living at work, living from work. And I thought that was so clever. It's so true instead of work from home, obviously. Um, but over the past few years, many of our conversations around this topic stemmed from how to create two equally balanced parts. Is that really the answer, though? And now, especially, it looks a little bit different. I think that we've discussed this idea of a time-fluid society. It's a desynchronized society where now with COVID and crazy schedules and trying to put lots of different things on our plates in lots of different ways, it's not really just like a 9 to 5 where you drive home at 5.30 during rush hour, you know, taking that liminal time to kind of transition into the idea of being home, make dinner at six and you're in bed by 9.30, you know? So this desynchronized society, this time fluid society, people are working from home, living from work, and the rise of accessibility to this 24 hour convenience is, is the result. And it's an opportunity, I think, for brands to meet their consumer in this reality, capitalizing on the opportunity to connect with smaller groups more frequently throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So 24 hour food delivery, like I said, who doesn't love that? Amazon Prime Now delivery, I live for. It saves my life. Same day shipping. When Amazon is like, it's going to take three days, I'm like, this is garbage. You know, we're so <laughs> spoiled. But flexible offices, too, mean that timelines are transitional and engaging with consumers through different pop-up concepts throughout the day yep. really creates surprise and delight. Two sentiments that will serve as drivers absolutely for the 2023 consumer. After that mouthful, let me turn it to you, Rebecca. <laughs> what does the time-fluid engagement strategy for consumers look like to you? Yeah, this idea or new reality of a time-fluid society is, again, spot on. But what's interesting to me is that, yes, technology has given us the ability to shop whenever, wherever, and get it when we want it, as you just said, without leaving our desk or our couch. And I love that. We can shop Instagram ads or Facebook ads or get sale notifications via email, which, let's be honest, it's going right to our spam folder because ain't nobody <laughs> got time for that when you're going through your email. But what this technology and this time fluidity has also done is give us ownership of how we use our time. In many cases, people are more efficient and thus have more time in their day-to-day -day life to be used for other things, hopefully putting that time into their values that we've been talking about. 
But that could, you know, and that could be their family or their health or their activism, whatever it may be. And if the sourdough bread or banana (laughs) bread trend has told us anything, it's that people are using their time differently. And more importantly, they are craving different things, things that are slower, more intentional, made with their hands, more sensorial. Oh, I agree. And I think it's a time of intuitive living. I think now this flexibility in our schedule, not having to necessarily be at your office, at your desk from nine to five means Mm -hmm. if you need a 20 minute break to shut your eyes because you have a killer migraine, you can do it. It means that you can live intuitively. You can eat when your body is hungry. You can sleep when your body is tired. You can rest, you can work, you can, you know, really hark into your circadian rhythm and find the ebbs and the flows in the days where you feel most productive or you feel like you're taking a little bit of a pause. You know, it's a really intentional, intuitive time. Yeah, and exactly. So while we have um, the ability or I have the ability to get my Starbucks and espresso pods on my scheduled delivery from Amazon, um, and that takes one less thing off my mind and off my time, COVID's quarantine has also shown us that people want to be out in the world engaging physical places and interacting with people, touching tangible things. We crave experiences. Yes. We are sensorial beings. Yes. <laughs> and that, yeah. And that circles back to my research that we talked about earlier. You know, we must redefine retail's physical purpose. You know, it's not just about selling anymore because we can do that anywhere. It's about connecting people and connecting them to the things that matter most to them and to a greater purpose, providing more life enrichment and education to support their vision of the future. I love it. I'm so here for it. All right, one last thing I want to discuss before I turn it back over to Mark is wellness. I -hmm. love wellness. I live for wellness. If you don't have health, you have nothing. Health is wealth. I can't say it enough. Right. Wellness, how it pertains to consumers, all right? So currently at MA, we are empowering our clients to think about our respite room prototype in their spaces that help them build resiliency and support mental wellness resources within their built environment in any of our sectors that we design for. As people are coping with sentiments of fear and needing to build trust, how do you see wellness and this idea of replacing fear with trust through wellness as an opportunity for brands and businesses? Well, you know, Sam, this is one of the things that I love about this partnership, you know, with the things that we've worked on together is that we, again, share values. And so wellness is one of those shared values. And I really appreciate that opportunity. So I actually just read an interesting article this morning on the science of fear and its impact on learning. So low to medium, and this is really interesting, low to medium levels of stress hormone can actually improve learning and enhance memory, whereas high levels of stress hormone can have a negative effect. So what that means is if you want to improve learning, you can alter the environment slightly, move some chairs around or add something new to the space, maybe change the paint color or put something artful on the wall. The small changes can create a sense of wonder. And curiosity and fright are along the same path neurologically. However, if an environment is full of fear and causes anxiety, learning is drastically decreased. What are some examples of that? What's something in the built environment that would induce fear or cause anxiety? Well, I think too much technology right? Having a barrage of information thrown at you all at one time, um, not having the ability to decompress or to have 
a visual or physical stimulus that helps to um, create a resurgence or a revitalization. So, so what's interesting, going back to the paper, is that while the paper was talking about learning environments, which I know MA and I are working on with regard to wellness, this also translates to other areas such as work, workplace, because work is learning. We also know that stress at home reduces learning in the classroom or the workplace. So in summary, the study states that a calm environment with a bit of variety increases learning, but a tense environment does not. So in the work of the respite room research project that we're working on and its implementation, the science indicates that by including a space that offers a sense of wonder, an opportunity to de-stress, for an example, this type of space per your question earlier, we can actually increase learning. And if our job, or our life for that matter, isn't about continued learn continual learning, um, about forward growth and development, then what is life about? Oh, I couldn't right? agree with you more. Yeah, so in reference to our previous conversation about time fluidity, it's important that if people are working at home and these lines are blurred, that they also bring this idea of de-stressing and respite to their daily life. We need to hit pause for a mindful moment. Couldn't agree with you more. So one last thing that I want to talk about. You know me, I'm a futurist, and I love talking about the signals and drivers mm -hmm. of change that are coming down the pike. It's something that we talk about you and me all both. the time. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about 2023 and even beyond into 2030. So what are the things that you are seeing coming down the pike that will have a change on um, our future consumers? Yeah, as you said, as a futurist and as a research, we're in solidarity there. You know, you and I know the importance of looking through not just a local but a global lens, that we can look at the micro, but we must zoom back and look at the macro. I think throughout our conversations today, we've tried to do that, and we've really covered a lot of ground and a wide variety of different areas um, on future-driven topics. But maybe I can end by providing a few attributes to consider for our readers. Sure, yep. Um, so I think attributes are something we often work on, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if we can consider some of these, slow and intentional, mm -hmm. evidence-based, and by that I mean a return to science and research-driven strategy, Des um, deepening relationships with humanity and nature, and climate action. Agreed. All of those things that we talk about those things all the time. So do. again, I 100% agree with that. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next uh, couple of years, given, po given how COVID has accelerated all of our trends. So. I like the future. I'm you excited too. for it. <laughs> where I want to live. Yes. Well, that's our show. Uh, we are so thankful that you could share your innovations and insights. These are the innovations that will help our listeners find inspiration in their own lives in the days and weeks to come. We are excited to hear about what happens. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at ma-architects.com, where we have an entire COVID toolbox up and running that covers the wide variety of sectors that we serve. And if you want to continue the conversation, feel free to email me directly at markb at ma-architects.com. Once again, I'm one of your hosts for Make It Innovative, Mark Bryan. And I'm Sam Dickerson. I hope you can find the change you want to be to allow innovation to thrive in the way you live. And have a great day, everyone. Make it innovative.